Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Lisa. And I'm Laura. And today we're talking about narcissism. You know, I think that this is an important conversation to have right now, not just because of the political climate, which we're certainly going to talk about, but also because I feel like narcissism and narcissists are something that we can identify in lots of parts of our lives, whether it's our families or our work spaces. Uh, and it's, I think narcissism and its relationship to culture is something we don't probably talk about enough of, especially in the American context. Yeah, I, it's, it's kind of hard to nail down what narcissism is because it's a lot of different things and narcissism operationalizes for a lot of people in a lot of different ways. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it could be like, a an unacceptable lack of empathy or, um, an obsession with oneself. It could be um, diverting one's attention entirely to one's own needs, uh, one's own pursuits, and it could be a combination of all of those things in different uh, weights. Mm -hmm. So um, I think a lot of people exhibit some types of narcissistic personality disorder. But it's kind of a weird, like, um, mental illness for, like, from a diagnostic standpoint because people are, like, exhibit it in such different ways. And I think a lot of, like, what we associate with, like, being an American, like, patriotism and, like, thinking that we're the greatest country on earth and, like, those kinds of ways that we, like, act as Americans and like a lot of our traditions and celebrating that aspect of our national identity, like some of that can be considered like a narcissistic behavior. So that's kind of an interesting thing to like think about things that are like completely acceptable American traditions as like types of narcissism. Yeah, I mean, Freud saw narcissism as, like, the original libidinal impulse, right? Like, our originary state is to be focused on the self. And so, like, the field of psychology, as it has emerged from his early writings um, around the relationship between the ego and its relationship to the self and identity, is about the centrality of self-focus as a precondition of being human so that's what makes it hard to say okay well here's an acceptable amount of caring about oneself or like self-obsession and here is when you cross that line i think for me the lack of empathy coupled with exploitation um is where politically (laughs) i think narcissism is the most damaging um in terms of like a national identity or the behaviors of a country or the orientation of citizenship towards uh, an excessive inflated sense of accomplishment or success. And I also think that narcissism is really dangerous in terms of the way that we understand work. And obviously, right, at Lean Back, we talk a lot about work. We have a whole episode on it. So thinking about work ethic and success, right, as something that creates a kind of cultural narcissism in terms of a culture of overwork, I think is really salient in this political moment, especially because we're seeing, you know, wages are so stagnant, (laughs) inflation is still 
moving, right? The rich-poor gap is widening as fast as it ever has, and money doesn't go as far, and so people are working so many hours, right? And what else can you do except to focus on the thing that you're doing for economic survival? So, I mean, we're going to obviously talk about the interpersonal dimensions of narcissism and how it affects people on that dimension, but from a structural perspective, I think, you know, narcissism fundamentally propels alienation from the self and from others. And I think it is what undermines healthy communities as a political orientation. Yeah, I mean, we talk about how dangerous capitalism is all the time, but when you have people who are single-mindedly focused on their own achievement, which is a very, like, lean-in impulse also, yeah. <laughs> um, there's a lot of damage that happens around, like, being able to cultivate intimacy, being able to cultivate community, like strong relationships with other people I mean you just don't have the time or energy and also like there's a drive I mean all of our attention is so divided because we're all so focused on our own achievements and also that there's so much information out there and there's so many different ways to access it like we are called on to like self-promote like if you want any piece of attention it requires self-promotion good self-promotion and frequent self-promotion and so when you're called on to do so much of that, then your focus becomes more <laughs> insular too. So I see that happening a lot um, on social media. I hate it. I hate the self-promotion so much. I loathe it. I, I see the way, the way that it is influencing the academy and it's always been there, but, you know, it's not like it's a new phenomenon. It's not even that the new media changes it. I just hate doing it. It's I don't hate it because I'm self-loathing. I don't hate it because I don't think my ideas are valuable or I don't want to circulate them. It just seems so crass to me. <laughs> it's very hard to be open and vulnerable with people while you're also like, and here's the thing I'm doing, and here's the thing that I did, and here's the thing that I want. I mean, it, there's a grotesqueness to it that... All I can do is joke about because I find it fundamentally absurd. And in some ways, I feel like the self-promotional aspect undercuts. Um, it certainly t it undercuts one's time, right? So you've just been more time doing that than actually doing the work, which I prefer to do the work. I, I really find it tremendously alienating. I don't like the self-promotion, but you're right, it's an essential part. I just feel like the way that we think about labor is so fucked right now, and <laughs> what we're spending our time on is so skewed towards an economic model that both hyper-focuses on the self and also focuses on, on the self in negative ways that alienate us from any real kinds of intellectual, social, psychological growth and connection. It's, it's, it just strikes me as tremendously damaging. And I don't, it's not even just like the hours that we're working or even the kinds of labor that we're doing, but it also is structuring intimacy because sexuality is entirely constructed around narcissism. Narcissism about what it means to be heterosexual, narcissism about what it means to be a man or a woman, even though we know those categories are garbage compulsory heterosexuality especially marriage monogamy all and, and even individual sexuality and sexual freedom all of that is also built and scaffolded upon the architecture 
of narcissism and a focus on the self that is fundamentally alienating one from our own bodies and those bodies in relation to others. I mean, in that sense, I mean, narcissism stems from a really human impulse. Like, people are trying to feel in control of an environment that's unstable. Mm -hmm. And, like, I don't know, patriarchy stems from that. Like, trying to acquire property and to reduce instability. And monogamy stems from that because you don't want to have, like, (laughs) you want a sense of security because there's not a lot of other ways to achieve it in the natural world so i don't know narcissism is a natural impulse because like it's a survival instinct in some ways i think yeah but i don't think that that's narcissism i I, the narcissism i think comes from the excessive focus on the self to the exclusion of others not just you know the, the human drive right is not the source of narcissism focus on the self is not abnormal right and also I just (coughs) I am just of the opinion that the major problem with the security hypothesis is that it's an illusion obviously nobody's ever secure right violence can happen to anybody at any time a whole variety of things right there are huge structural variables (laughs) right that an individual person cannot overcome to stabilize one's life to create actual security. So it's just this elaborate apparatus of self-delusion, right, about how one is safeguarding oneself. Mm-hmm. And you're right, in, basically in the Habesian state of nature, right? <laughs> so then narcissism probably is like how one sustains and protects one's ego yes. and not oneself. That's correct. So mm-hmm. it's like a s- mechanism of protecting a self and inflating self-esteem. Yeah, to hedge against rejection, mm-hmm. basically. Right? right, but but when you build that architecture so tightly, then you lose the ability to do self-reflection at all, right? Because you're just fortifying with walls and gates and right all of the other architectures of fear, and you lose the ability to be vulnerable and to do intimacy and to play, right? And all of the other counter values that lean back is all about i mean it's just it becomes impossible for those people to reach back out across the wall which is why walls and gates right become so important in the actual physical geography of human life because they remind us about how to structure ourselves away from other people right but they are really just the externalization of the way that we protect our egos inside of our bodies and so the narcissists build extremely tall strong thick walls where they can't even get to their ego and manage their own self-loathing and so they're so up far up their own asses right they alienate themselves from their feelings about themselves and others in ways that are hyper destructive they also alienate themselves from other people's feelings about them. Oh, yeah. Like, a lot of the studies about narcissism are about how narcissists react to feedback, mm-hmm. especially negative feedback, and they don't handle it. They'll retaliate. They, they won't accept it. <laughs> They'll become even more narcissistic. Totally. <laughs> and their self-esteem will, like, grow in response to, to negative feedback. And we see that uh, in real life with our president, Donald Trump. I mean... He models that kind of narcissistic behavior. I mean, he won't admit when he's done a, a, a bad job. He says it's a lie or he won't admit it. Like, 
his hurricane response, the disaster relief for Hurricane Maria. He says it's a great success. It's not. <laughs> like, every fact points to that disaster relief effort being... An abject failure. Completely inadequate. Yeah. And he says it was a great success. So, I mean... And he retaliates to any kind of insult about his appearance, any kind of, like, bad feelings <laughs> about his... Job performance, yeah. Performance, right. I mean... About the, his penis size. The thing <laughs> about Trump, though, is that he was born and bred that way, right? Like, his childhood was actually the Hunger Games. His dad would not tolerate any kind of failure or emotional connection. He sent Trump to military school where he basically perfected being a bully. I mean, his dad was so worried that Trump was such a narcissist he sent him to military school to try and curb some of the behaviors that he had created and it just exacerbated them. So, I mean, he 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 is fundamentally built for destructive behavior. And he's the epitome of it. So that becomes a problem because it creates a sense of the nation that is so totally isolationist. Not just in terms of foreign policy. I talk about it with my students because they want to try and tell me about their feelings about Muslims or something. And I'm like, here is a map. Where are things on it? Label. Just where are things in the world? You don't know. I don't, I'm not interested in your opinions about places you can't find on a fucking map. I'm not interested. And what is Aleppo? Yes. <laughs> like, I can't, I cannot Gary even. Johnson. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I'm not interested. And so we talk about this and I'm like, I would like to know what the last news story you watched on Al Jazeera was about. And they're like, I don't even know what you're saying. I'm like, right. Because your cable package structure is structured so that Al Jazeera does not broadcast in the South. There's a reason for that. And it creates a particular kind of identity that is focused entirely about what we are manufacturing about ourselves. We are building our own shit and then eating it all day long. That is a culture. Our nationalist culture is a narcissistic culture. You know, it, it's a very hard thing about teaching debate or argumentation in the South because people have no other access to other points of view about themselves, nor do they have the emotional capacity to even process it when they're exposed to it. It's different in more cosmopolitan places, right? The coasts are different because there are so many different kinds of people and there are lots of other perspectives. I'm not saying that they're better because of it. I'm saying that there are there's an access point for a whole host of other perspectives should one be so inclined. It is not the case. It is structurally absent, especially in the South. So are you going to see more rigid attitudes about xenophobia and white supremacy and all that horseshit? Yes, you are. You are. Because the rest of it has been structured out of people's attention. They, they don't have, they don't even know it's there. So that seems to me to be a technology of self, right, as citizen, as part of nation, that is fundamentally undermining intimacy and connection and community and safety and health right, is our inability to see how others perceive us. And so, you know, you can scale that down, which is in a marriage or in a household or in a family, and then scale it up, right, into the UN, because Trump just withdrew us from the UN Human Rights Council. So that is the moment that we're in. We're in a, a moment of anti-empathy, anti-vulnerability, 
right? We are in this hyper-narcissistic, paranoid, nationalist moment that is about reconstructing walls and borders and architectures of fear as a way to protect what is fundamentally a declining uh, white supremacist power in the United States and a declining American empire, quite frankly. I mean, if you scale it down to the family, all of these families that we're surrounded by are totally built on architectures of codependence, right? Because codependence is how you manage the insecurity and instability of a declining nation inside of your micro unit. And so what do you have? You have the narcissist, right? And then you have the codependent and they become completely enmeshed in a very damaging psychological relationship of abuse and trauma and neglect. And the whole country is replicating that through the vision of whiteness, right? Now, this isn't to see that, that there aren't other models. Of course, there are. We have all of the studies from, you know, communities of color and other mothering and alternative communities and support networks that don't look like the heteronormative family that are alternatives to that. So it's not like there aren't other options and ways that we can arrange our affective and emotional labor to be more healthy. But when you scale it down to the family, it's that really, really busted relationship, mostly between the narcissist man and the codependent woman, although not always, right, that becomes enmeshed in communication patterns that are about abuse and neglect and recreating the instability of the nation inside of the household. It's difficult when relationships are about, are not about intimacy and they're about self-preservation and control and narcissism. And it's just like seems so like at odds with how we like romanticize relationships mm -hmm. and how they actually play out as like structures of capital are is like um damaging in that way i feel like if we think about narcissism in these in these do two directions toward the state and towards the family it's important to understand how the apparatus of the nation serves narcissism right like everybody's like okay so these cops are killing all these black kids yes they are because the law enables the state to look only at its own self-preservation right the legal system is entirely about preserving the state it's not about justice nobody gets justice that's why would we if, if there was justice there wouldn't be bail right if there was justice you wouldn't plead out if there it, that's not a thing this the legal system is not about justice that's not real the ideal would be that it would create justice, but it does not do that in practice. What it does is it's, it's this very conservative way of perpetuating, right, conservative state power, right? That hyper-concentrated decision-making of the elites, right, of governmentality and, you know, all, all of that alienated labor, it's a way of controlling that. It's not a way of serving the needs of the people or all this, like, d democracy language. <laughs> it's not about that is a self-perpetuating cycle of power. And so as insofar as the family, the heterosexual nuclear family, right, it's called nuclear for a reason, because it's the idea of nationhood that is born during the Cold War. It's the unit through which Americanism can be most successfully perpetuated. That is where you see the replication of this kind of gross power happening inside of the family because it's the easiest way to create a sense of identification with the nation. So the nation in and of itself is a narcissistic unit of aggregating people. It's not like there's, there aren't nations that don't do that is what I'm saying. 
right? That's the whole function of nationality and borders, is to create limits about who is and who is not a citizen. We're having that conversation about these immigrant children that have been stolen, right? from their families. I mean, you know, you've been seeing, everybody's been seeing all the tweets about it. It's like, you know, you, you, you get it, you, you get, you know, a uh, luggage tag when they take your luggage, right, at the airport and you get it back and there's no system to process any of these children. They've just been given away, presumably to white families, right, which is the story of the nation. So for me, I just sort of feel like, you know, nationality itself is an anti-intimacy project fundamentally it's a fundamental way of stopping people from connecting and every assertion of nationality or nationalism is a way of undercutting our ability to create meaningful social connections with others it's ju they're just barrier 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 and so for people who don't have access to other standpoints about themselves build the wall is a very easy way to activate all of those you know security impulses in people who are in precarious economic positions right or social positions given their whiteness or their poverty or their geography or whatever right mm -hmm. i don't know if there's a way to organize people in ways that don't promote narcissism because even when it's not about nationalism that's not your point of uh, connecting with people I see narcissism playing out with people taking pictures of themselves and sharing intimate details about themselves and sharing their vacation photos and everything that they organize, people organize about themselves online is about themselves, I think. So I, I don't, and I don't know if that's all about nationalism because in some ways it is and that's what we're seeing people doing on a, a large scale um, with what you're talking about. In, in this border situation, but I mean, it, it, I see it everywhere, I not mean, just in nationalism. But the question is, what is the threshold for toxicity, right? I mean, in the same way that we've both conceded that focus on the self is an intrinsic part of humanness, right? There will always be focus on the self. Journaling or self-care or whatever, whatever, right? Anything that one does that's focused on the self is not necessarily narcissistic. The point is, is that when it becomes toxic, right, then it becomes a disorder or a problem. You know, and by disorder, I mean not ordered, right, and a, disor and, and, and a disorderly, right, orientation towards culture. It's more like if we think about, like, atoms, like free radicals, <laughs> right? Narcissists are like these free radicals that fuck up humanity because they, they make it impossible to bond, right? So you can't build... You can't assemble atoms, right, in ways that build complex associations mm -hmm. of things. I think you. I think that the antidote to narcissism is joy, and I think it's care. I think care and joy together create a disruption to that kind of narcissism. So, like in response to Trump, I think the that it's got to be a joyful humanity. It's got to be a kind of relentless connecting with others and not a retreat into the self to like not see the horribleness of the news or to not recognize the atrocities that are fundamentally American in terms of history or present and not a, you know, you see this impulse on the internet like, if you say this bad thing, I'm cutting you out, and, which is just so lazy to me because it's like, what are you building? What are you building? 
Who are you freeing? What are you, what is the architecture you're, you can't just withdraw, right? That's the same thing. The withdrawal is you performing the alienation that is the fundamental goal of nationalism. Don't do that. That's not to say love your abuser either. Don't, don't intentionally mishear me there, right? But in terms of not refusing to communicate with people is fucking childish. And it's, it's revolting as a civic practice, right? And I'm, not say, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm certainly not calling for civility either. But to just withdraw wholesale from people who say stupid shit is the most privileged positionality of the narcissist possible. Like, I have the only perspective on the thing, right? And, that's, and, I, and I mean that even accounting for ethics. Like, you, it, like the feminists are just like, cut all the men out. That's a dumb positionality. It's, it's patently absurd, Right? To just be like, oh, we're just not going to communicate to half of the people. Like, we're just not going to transform them. Right? Separatism is, an, is, is a useful political exercise in building group identity, but it fails as a political solution to problems. Right? And so there has to be a way of inhabiting a more joyful, <laughs> caring space that resists the withdrawal to the self because that is fundamentally the isolationism mm -hmm. of the paranoid nationalist and that is that's that's the same as the white supremacist yeah and they've cultivated a lot of anger and that was a big driver in like trump's okay uh, rise to power I here's what i'll say i freaked out on the internet about this yesterday right and wrote a giant thread about the relationship between rage and shame and fundamentally rage and fury come from deep humiliation so all of the scaffolding of nationalist architecture around whiteness and Americanness or the South, right? All of these imaginary terrains are shifting. And that precarity combined with real economic, real economic precarity creates a very destabilized self in this historical moment. And so it is fucking humiliating to be poor, right? Poverty is a constant humiliation. That is where rage com comes from. Whether that's in the inner cities in 1965, 66, 67, or in rural America today, hu humiliation, real or perceived, and shame is what causes that rage. So in order to ameliorate the rage, you have to eliminate the shame, which is a hard, hard thing for a Christian culture that's entirely built on shame culture about sexuality and about poverty. So that's why, you know, the alienation of labor is so important because the same labor that you're alienated from in the workplace is the same labor that you're alienated from in terms of your body and your sexuality. And when those things are part of the Christian nation, then you have all of this white supremacist neo-Nazi Christian shit happening. The shame culture is so bad as an architecture of nationalism. It is literally the worst, most destructive shit. The worst. That's how Nazi things are. That's how genocides happen based on humiliation and the rage that fuels it. Whether that's the fact that Jewish Germans had a bunch of money before and after World War One, ethnic Germans in giant air quotes felt that they were, you know, completely destroyed financially, or whether that's the poverty of rural America or the Rust Belt or whatever. That shit is humiliating. It causes rage. So you got you got to stop shaming those people and find a way to remove remove their humiliation, and that's through joy. I mean, I'm glad that we're in the midst of 
Pride Month for we're recording. Yeah, it totally. Because a lot of those people orient their lives around joy, and they also have like you know this type of poverty in that they're not completely recognized by their mm-hmm. culture, and, and a lot of times their family, but they still orient their identities at least in terms of this like public space during these parades as a a celebration Mm -hmm. and in a sense of joy and those celebrations have been growing and the support has been growing and so I think like seeing the joy that happens in that space in that queer space Mm -hmm. um, even though there's also a lot of pain (laughs) that exists in their lives not to undermine that part of their reality um but the fact that even with like those dynamics happening in their real lived experiences that they're still able to celebrate with like music and color and art and that it's anti-shame anti-shame yeah i mean pride is pride is pride is the antidote to shame but then it also becomes a thing that can feed shame right that's the whole limit that is the limit of identity politics is that the more rigid the identities become and the distinctions between one identity and the other the more likely the shame is creating the distinction between one and the other right mm-hmm. so we're in this moment that's so interesting because i you know, i've been thinking about i've been writing a syllabus and i've been thinking about the call at the end of the 70s to end gender right to move away from he and she and and the use of androgyny as like this playful creative space i've been thinking a lot about david bowie and i've been thinking about what it means to occupy the liminal space the third space the not quite and about how we have rigidified race and gender since the clinton administration um especially progressives or the left or whatever and certainly academics as a way of trying to um, rectify historic wrongs and inequalities through a very, very intense effort to create distinctions, right? To build the law, right? But creating laws is not the same as creating justice, as I talked about earlier. And so I think that that kind of calcification of identity markers um, is a very interesting uh, failure for the left, right? Because it's a very centrist thing. I've been thinking about all the t-shirts, right, in, in this post-Trump moment of, like, the future is female and girl power and, you know, this th- the way that empowerment and resistance are fundamentally not about freedom. And we're in a moment where the language is impoverished and that makes our relationality impoverished, and it, it and it is what is undermining our ability to have the tools to navigate the narcissism of nation and of you know of this economic moment. Uh, and I think like the resistance and the blue wave and the pussy hats and uh, resist and all of that shit is fundamentally narcissistic and not about freedom, and it's not about freeing oneself or creating the conditions for freedom for others so much as it is about convincing oneself that oneself is doing a thing. And I don't think that it is enough to resist or to wear the t-shirt or, you know, to proclaim that, you know, the future is female or whatever. And I think a lot of that stuff is doing really difficult damage to 
movement possibilities. The language sucks. We need new language is what I'm saying. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, it seems like a point of contention rather than finding points of connection. Although that's not useful if you're, like, uh, supporting damaging apparatus. apparatus. Yeah, and you can't connect with Nazis, right? So there, there yeah. is a limit. You know, some, some you can't. It's not. It's not a thing that it's necessarily desirable, or not everybody should try. But there has to. You, there has to be a refocus on freedom as the goal, and that is not what we're talking about. We're talking about these little tiny micro things, right? There is no futurist impulse. There's no futurist vision. Who are we? What do we want to become? Who are we as a people? What are our values? None of that. None of that visionary work is happening the language is not being invented and and so then we just get stuck in these shitty old models that are like pre-1970s languages about what we want what we care about and who we are and so the i think the other thing about narcissism is that it relies on nostalgia and the past and whether that's the lost cause ideology of the old south or like America before the wars or the, the you know, the 50s and s space age modernism. I mean, there are these moments that become, you know, this historical fodder for the present that undercuts our agency and our ability to talk about freedom too. And I think is an architecture of narcissism as a cultural product. Someone, I, someone came up on my Facebook feed the other day and their Facebook post was just, I hate change. <laughs> <laughs> That's so human. <laughs> I hate change. And I just, it, I found it so hilarious. Funny. I dwelled on it for so long and I posted, I didn't even know this person that well, but I posted this like picture of a gif of Obama <laughs> being like, <laughs> but I mean, and obviously like he used change and, uh, ways that like all also d weren't uh, about freedom. About certainly. freedom, no, right? Uh -uh. So <laughs> I don't know. It's just funny that I mean you're entirely right that there's like this nostalgia for the past, and part of that's like a security thing too. It's like I don't know what the future holds, and so I'm just gonna like stick with what I know it's just an inflexibility <clears throat> and part of that is actually kind of uniquely American not all cultures score so highly <laughs> on their ability to manage uncertainty in, in communication it's called uncertainty reduction Americans are the worst at managing uh, uncertainty and that creates hyper rigidity like the response as a reaction N not all cultures are like that but we are we are very very high and that creates a kind of national neurosis, right? Where it's not surprising to me. My students ask me all the time, like, oh my gosh, is it real? Are we like over-medicated? And I'm like, you're all, it's neurotic, right? Like the culture is neurotic. And so, yeah, that changes your brain chemistry, chemistry because everything that you're hearing is messages about precarity and you're feeling actually precarious because the culture is not providing social safety nets that would create a predictable future for you. And they're actively undermining them at every fucking turn. So, yeah, you are medicated because that shit is difficult to manage on the daily. It's real fucking hard. And without community, it's damn near impossible. So in a moment where, you know, this, this hype, hypo-nationalism 
is retreating into paranoia and is relying on the erosion of social services people are going to feel more and more precarious and they're going to get more fucking racist and sexist and they're i mean all of those become the apparatus of the self because the economic and social trauma is so great right so what's happening is that Trump's removal of these kids and the Republican attack on Social Security and on Medicare and Medicaid is about creating an exa- a massive amount of cultural trauma that prevents families from caring for themselves, right? As they age or as they run into health problems or as they retire, they're not able to bond with their families, right? And I don't mean families, the nuclear family, their communities, their neighbors, their, like, right? I mean that in a real big sense, not in the nuclear family sense. And that is going to fuck the culture so badly. Yeah. I mean, I don't mean to make this about me, but <laughs> also. Oh my God, please make that your memoir title. <laughs> Write that down. I don't mean, I to, don't make mean this to make this about, about me, me as your memoir title. That's A plus. This stays in. But. Um, <laughs> But also, it's a podcast where I'm recording, we're recording this, oh, assuming yeah. that people want to hear us talk about stuff. Yeah. So, <laughs> maybe it is in some ways about us, um, or about me. But I see that happening in my workplace, where um, a lot of the people I work with, like, ha- are incredibly empathetic people, and are good, like, understanding like good humans I work with good humans for the most part and the conditions of the work and like the conditions of our wages being too low to survive (laughs) in any kind of sustainable way like it's a wage where like if you were to perhaps lose your job or injure yourself um in any kind of way that kept you from being able to work like you would be financially ruined ruined and so I see people handling the precarity of that situation and also the pressure of the work environment that we're in and they completely alienate themselves. They're unable to even care for themselves, mm-hmm. let alone their yes. coworkers. And we're all like people who are completely capable of empathy or people who are caring and understanding and like loving um, when we're not at work. But it, all of us I see like a mutation happening and all of us who are like the wages are getting lower and lower and our work is getting greater and greater uh-huh. and the care like is the first thing to go <laughs> yeah yeah and i mean all of my coworkers on certain shifts that are extremely busy have cried within the last month and no one really none of the other, none of us and i'm trying to do better about it we don't like hug each other we're just like get over it get over it you know there's no like care there's no following up no one asked me the next day if I'm feeling better um and I mean I've been guilty of doing that to my coworkers too like they're just it's another thing that is exhausting to them so yeah that's a hard <laughs> uh reality um and I, I I don't know if that's narcissism no <laughs> it's not. It's not. It's not. That's your fault. That's but the alienation of of neoliberal capitalism. Right. That is the that is labor. That is capitalism. That is not narcissism. Right. So it's not. To- I mean, it's toxic because it's being imposed upon the self, not because the self is 
you know. But there is a way, I think, of seeing narcissism as a maladaptation or as an adaptation, right, both of them, to structural precarity that is intentionally created by the state. Right. So, you know, I, I don't even... I, it's so funny because all this... The Obama years were full of all this happiness talk about how to be happy and happiness and happiness studies and right self-help skyrocketed post-Bush because everybody's so fucking depressed because those eight years were horrible even though we have nostalgia for them now in comparison to this narcissist um, <clears throat> but you know this moment is is such a despairing moment what does it mean for an entire national identity to swing within 16 months between happiness, despite all the horrible shit that was happening in the Obama administration, right? But a national rhetoric of happiness to despair. Because in some ways, Trump is, pr is propelling a real intense, magnified, concentrated conversation about American atrocity and about structural brutality and about imprisonment and the carceral state and a bunch of shit that we totally fucking ignored during the Obama administration and so you know that level of scrutiny of the ego of the of the nation of the collective ego and then the ego of the self in terms of what have I not done is really important and I see it a lot because you know you see longtime activists who are just like so pissed off and so exhausted with all these like pussy hat wearing resistors and I've certainly fallen this camp most days. And it's just like, you know, yeah, good. Post your Facebook article. But where the fuck have you been your entire life? What, you know, all of us were screaming into the fucking ether for, for years that he was coming, that a Trump was coming. And all of the horrible shit that was happening. And people could not be bothered because they were comfortable. And they are having a, a fucking come to Jesus about their total neglect of culture and community for their entire fucking lives. And I'm talking about the baby boomers here mostly. And, you know, and so we are having to live through the agony of that self-appraisal that is, you know, jagged and unequally distributed <laughs> towards women and not men of the boomer generation uh, in a way that is pu is publicly exhausting, quite frankly. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because Trump's narcissism has, in some ways, it's like, ha we've never known an American president better than Trump. Because, yeah, totally. I mean, his That's fantasies totally and primal emotions are on complete display, uh -huh. especially in his tweets, but I mean, all the time, twenty four seven. Yeah, no filter. Uh, yeah, and in some ways, like that lack of filter is authentic. I mean, it's oh, it's totally authentic. Clueless, <laughs> but so are a lot of his supporters. But also, like in that discovery of like knowing this American president so intimately, we also like are learning, like you said, more like. We've also never known America better yeah. and what it's capable of and what it's been doing as a structure of power. Yes. So, yeah, it's kind of an interesting realization. It's like the more you know. Yeah, well, but that's because he is the displaced superego, right? Mm -hmm. And so what does it mean to confront that as an externalized ext extension of the self? That is what we're in the process of managing. And also, we're surrounded by people who do not have the, the apparatus or the language or the tools mm -hmm. to manage that level of scrutiny. So it is painful, you know. And f like I said, for the activists who are in the trenches managing the day-to-day -day brutality 
of the punishing orientation of American culture, not just during Trump, but certainly now, it is just totally fucking overwhelming. And so I'll tell you, you know, for, for me, I'm getting asked to do all of these talks. You know, I do, I do so many public events because, the, you know, people need the words. And they all, all want to talk about care. They all want to talk about burnout and care and despair. <laughs> That's yeah, I mean, I did. Everybody wants that. That's everybody wants Just to now. talk. <laughs> I know. But it's real. Yeah. The whole culture is melting the fuck down. And we are hitting a breaking point. And so the question is whether people have it in them to reimagine and rebuild their fucking institutions or if they're just going to let it burn and be like, I wore a pussy hat when <laughs> the concentration camp was erected in my state. That's, that's literally where we're at. I'm not being hyper, hyperbolic about it, right? Is will, you know, in the struggle for America's soul or whatever, do people have the emotional energy and the capacity to do the hard work to rebuild a fucking nation? It's like, seriously, that is actually what is on the table. Because combined with climate change, oh my fucking God. If the nation, if the, if the sea levels rise for three feet, all of the coasts are gone. Then, the, I mean, just like the displacement of humans on this earth in the next hundred years is going to be so wrecked. And so in some ways, the narcissism is also keeping at bay the real fucking structural horrors that are coming for the planet. And it, the narcissism is a way of not confronting the much larger... That it's going to take everybody pitching in to, to stop, you know? Yeah. I hope my friends who just started their families aren't listening <laughs> right now. Your kids are going to grow up in the most... Fucked up. Yeah, yeah. Well, I agree. I mean, the thing is, though, that I think Americans and Christianity, uh, oddly enough are not good at thinking about suffering as a permanent state of being. And they want to, that's why they're so focused on happiness and shit all the time. And that is, that is, uh, seems like a very painful thing to do to oneself mm -hmm. is to think about happiness as a goal and not a, like a verb that you're doing. And that's why I'm saying that joy and communalism and community and play are where it's going to have to be because people do not have the ability to manage the distance between happiness and what their lives are going to look like in the next 10 years. They do not have it. That's going to be a bitch. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But suffering is, a, is an intrinsic part of humanity. And the, you teach the kids, teach them well. Because they're going to have to manage a lot more. And they're not going to... The nostalgia, the pull to nostalgia is going to be so horrific. You know? And that's why The Handmaid's Tale is so popular, right? Is it because people are, like, doing that kind of architectural, psychological work to understand atrocity and how it restructures worlds. That's why dystopian fiction is so popular right now, because this is a moment where we are going to, you know, basically decide and be forced into decisions that are going to restructure power for the entire fucking globe. Thanks for listening. These materials are not endorsed, approved, sponsored, or provided by or on behalf of the University of Arkansas Fayetteville.